0: It's Arjun with a video update this week on the topic of geopolitical and energy transition turmoil. I'm recording this the afternoon of Tuesday, October 10th. It's quite possible by the time this is released, uh, additional developments occur in the Middle East. Um, But this is a a video focused on the long-term impacts of ongoing uncertainty with a bunch of geopolitical issues. We started with Russia, Ukraine, and very tragically, we had the terrorist attacks in Israel last weekend. And... We're going to be dealing with the aftermath of of those attacks probably for for quite some time. We don't know how things will transpire, but we know the region itself is is obviously faces a lot of turmoil and uncertainty. And at the same time, we're seeing quite a bit of turmoil in the energy transition aims. And I wanted to talk about all this and the impact on how to think about energy over the long run. There are lots of places you can go to for short term updates on should you fade this oil price rally, as was the correct call with Russia, Ukraine when it first happened or um, are you know, is this trading call or that trading call correct here we're going to focus on what is the long term implications of of this type of uncertainty and and how might one want to think about it and our grounding point has been and remains that the energy needs of the world but in particular the other 7 billion people on earth are massive and that is our centering point how do you meet the energy needs of the other 7 billion people on earth beyond the lucky 1 billion of us and there's been some idea that, in addition to meeting those needs, we have to transition and we have to transition fast due to climate concerns. And the climate concerns might be legitimate. Um, different people have a range of views on how urgent or not urgent the situation is. But what I think is unquestionably false is this idea that we can have an easy and fast transition that it's somehow painless, that it somehow only requires will and tough political decisions. Energy is hard. All energy is hard. Energy by nature is capital intensive. That's true for the new stuff. It's true for the old stuff. And the profitability is uncertain. The costs are uncertain. And the timing of technology ramp is uncertain. There is nothing fast and easy about ramping new technologies. There's nothing fast and easy about ramping old technologies, let alone new technologies. And I think we are obliterating this idea that somehow transition can be easy and painless. It cannot. Um, we're seeing new energy equities collapse. Now, boom-bust cycles are nothing new for anyone that's covered energy for any period of time. This isn't actually the first boom-bust cycle for the new energies names, uh, but it is the first one since it's become a much more meaningful sector, gained broad-based attention. You know, the solar names historically have had some up and down, some legacy technologies that we don't even use anymore. Things like cell- cellulosic ethanol and biofuels have had their ups and downs. But in terms of being sort of a major focus for investors, you could call this the first bus phase after the first big boom, and this is going to have implications on timing and ramp and go-forward funding. We're also seeing ongoing challenges in the traditional space, where people are still avoiding it by and large. Some people think we should simply keep fossil fuels in the ground. I don't agree with that view. But whether we should or should not, it is actually staying in the ground. We have limited OPEC spare capacity. We have capex for the industry that is still much closer to trough than it is to peak. And just like with new energies, old energy is not just going to bubble itself out of the ground. You actually have to spend money. You actually have to, to try and invest. And that is something no one wants today. The climate people don't want it. The activists don't want it. A lot of politicians don't want it. And investors, traditional investors don't want it. Everyone is in the capital discipline mindset. Yet, in a world where there are massive energy needs, where new energies is facing some obvious challenges, you're going to need the, the old stuff to be there, and we're, we don't think we're on track for that. We've still preferred the ball rather than the supercycle language, and we stick with that as the premise of our call today. But we're inching closer to super spike too. You can't have nothing working. You can't have tr- new energies blowing up and having people saying, "Let's still avoid old energies." That doesn't work in a world that needs. massive amounts of of energy. Um, It is the economic uncertainty in China, the U.S., and Europe, whether we have recessions or not, soft landing, hard landing, that's what we're debating. That keeps us from actually calling for super spike two. but we're getting closer and certainly geopolitical turmoil uh, nudges you closer in that direction. And I think the final point we'd simply want to address is the idea that Traditional energy, more than any other space, remains highly underappreciated. This is a sector where we're going to need capital flows, whereas as a result of a lack of capital flows, I think we're on track for an extended period of very good profitability. But no one should think the new stuff is either going away or unworthy of investment. It is about sorting through what will be the rubble of some things, figuring out what future technologies are going to work. There is a lot of interest and a lot of desire to not be dependent on regions like the Middle East to not be dependent on foreign oil suppliers and so forth. So there will be a high motivation, in part because of the geopolitical turmoil, to try and figure out new energies. We're going to need them, as I've consistently said. But while we're waiting for some of those things to ramp up, and while there's uncertainty on their trajectory, we darn well better be focused on some of the traditional energy areas. And I think they, more than any other space, continue to be highly underappreciated by everybody investors, politicians, regular people, uh, and so forth. So I've shown this enough times now that you can go back and reread or rewatch previous incarnations, but I just thought we'd have some fun with numbers. And I'm now highly confident that you can see my cursor. So let's just talk about the energy needs of the other 7 billion people and and, and, and we'll have some fun with numbers. So if you want to say the lucky 1 billion of us, we're going to face electrification and all sorts of policies, I'd argue that has the potential for a 9 million barrel a day hit. And I'm using oil demand as a proxy for energy here. It's a more tangible number to a lot of people. Minus 9, I'd say, is it's probably a good case scenario for transition, but let's just use minus 9. If China gets to 5 barrels per capita, India to 3, Southeast Asia to 5, and Africa to 3, minus 9 plus 3 is minus 2, plus 8 is plus 6, plus 11 is is plus 13, plus 16 is plus 27. That's 27 million barrels a day of potential oil demand growth, net of energy transition in the lucky 1 billion of us. Right, The numbers are dramatic, let alone uh, if you get China to 7.5 or 10 barrels a day per capita. Same thing with India, Southeast Asia, Africa. Your total addressable market, and it could be over 100 years, Is to go from a hundred million barrel a day oil market to like a two hundred and fifty million barrel a day oil market. I don't think we're going to get to that kind of oil market. It's why you need the new stuff. But the idea that this stuff has peaked or plateaued and is going to enter a terminal decline—no way, no how. The energy needs of the rest of the world are massive, and that is why we use energy. It is for economic well-being. It is for safety. It is for health. It is for the environment, and it is for the betterment of lives. Uh, and we learned that lesson. And for some reason, we need to keep learning this lesson over and over and over again. It is our grounding point. Uh, It is why we care about the geopolitics of the Middle East. It's why we care about having a healthy policy to traditional oil and gas companies in the United States and Canada. Clearly, we need a healthy U.S. and Canadian oil industry to balance the uncertainty in the Middle East, at least so long as we're going to have, and I think it'll be for a while now, rising oil and gas demand. So, the new energies equities going through some growing pains, going through their first kind of bust cycle after a big boom. This is not to pick on them. If you've covered energy as long as I have for 30 years, we've seen many boom busts before. We could have done a similar graph like this with shale EMPs or before them, other subsectors, the offshore rig companies come to mind. Uh, I think we've seen this with land drillers. We've seen this with... Uh, Ah, uh, Gulf of Mexico E p companies. But this is new energies, and this is kind of their first time going through it. So these are the market capitalization in u s. dollars for some of the leading companies, Orsted, Vestas, Plug Power, and Neste, and next energy uh, era partners. And they're all uh, on this right axis. Next era is on this far right axis. So orsted has gone from what is that a ninety billion dollars market cap to nineteen. Uh Neste has gone from sixty billion to twenty four. Uh, Vestis, what is that 50 billion or so market cap to 19 billion? You get the picture. big reductions in the market capitalization of these companies, and that is going to mean a more challenging financing environment going forward. a little more scrutiny that'll be placed on the economics of their projects going forward. It does not mean it's over. it just means we're going to have to true up the true economics of all these different areas. Are they really scaling at cost? What is the? degree of subsidies involved. What happens when you actually have CapEx inflation and not that long-term trend of deflation that all the zealots had had talked about? There is an inherent uncertainty that has now crept into the finance of these areas, and it means a slower pace of growth, which, by the way, is healthier. It doesn't mean they're not going to grow. It doesn't mean we don't need a lot of it. But the idea that you need to rapidly accelerate these highly CapEx areas at a point of, when they've been more immature from a technology standpoint, you've seen it come home to roost. We've learned these lessons in traditional energy. We're now learning them in new energies, or at least some people are, um, it, it is what it is. We're going to need some of these companies to turn around, but it also means a slower pace of transition is going to be the end result of this. I don't, I don't see how that's a question. And what that also means is cost to capital is higher. Again, I think these are ultimately going to be healthier developments. It has never made sense to value these things on some sort of zero interest rate, perpetual growth type model that consistently gets energy companies into trouble, both new and old. You never want to believe, hey, who cares about the cost of capital? The growth will bail us out. We know that's not true. It's not true in old energy. It's not going to be true in new energy. So this is dividend yield. That's a very simplistic proxy for cost of capital. I have the MLPs here in the white line, and you can see they've had a few periods where They've blown out. The yield has blown out. They've suffered. It could have been COVID. It was in 2015, the original collapse uh, of oil prices, and um, you know you've, you've seen them cycle a couple of times. What's notable is the MLP yield has been sort of consistently around eight percent for the last several years. Here is Next Era Energy Partners. I think I finally got the name right, and you can see a very low dividend yield at P- as people had priced in the expectation for rapid future growth. And it's really blown out here. I, I'm not a next era analyst. I don't know if it's actually cheap or if they're going to have to do something further with the distributions or not. It's not about that. The point is simply cost of capital is going to be higher. I'm going to say that that ultimately is going to be a healthier sign. You want real economics to be driving new technologies. You don't want it to be based on subsidy or virtue signaling or ESG or all the silly reasons why people may wanna do this stuff. You wanna do this stuff because the world needs energy and that this is viable energy in some cases and that some countries are gonna want it because they're not gonna wanna be dependent on Saudi or Russia or perhaps not even the US and Canada for that matter. It it is, you're gonna want to support these companies because they have good projects that generate good returns because the world needs it, Um, not for the fluffy reasons uh, and the artificial reasons that have been driving this sector uh, in the previous period. And and that is starting to normalize. Higher cost of capital coming to new energy, it will ultimately be healthy, but we're going going through the correction phase right now. And as someone pointed out to me, we've never really seen a bust after a boom of this magnitude in this sector. So we're going to have to wait for the dust to settle to to really see where this stuff shakes out. Let me turn a little bit now to traditional energy because if the new energy is going to be uh, more challenged to grow or at least achieve the growth rates that some had expected, you're going to need the old stuff to be there. And one thing we haven't seen is folks come back and be willing to put, I'll just call it terminal value on traditional energy. There's even amongst those that are more or less pessimistic, I should say, even amongst those folks, there's been the notion, well, at some point it's going to plateau and peak. And I don't agree. I don't think there's any round number year where you can guess that oil or gas demand is going to be. It might peak some year, but I don't I don't see how we can know what that is when we know the new stuff's having challenges, when we know there's some really poor assumptions being put on some of the new stuff, and when we think people have been too pessimistic on the traditional stuff. So I've shown this cost curve a few times. And the real point here is that there are fewer projects. The cost curve is steepened from 2017 all the way to 2023. A steepening cost curve means there are fewer projects being pursued. And the projects that are being pursued, you go up quickly in terms of the kind of oil price you'd need. This has not come back to bite yet. We have not been in a super cycle mode. The long and the curl has been, and I'll show it in a second, has been pretty well grounded. And I think that's primarily because of the lackluster economic environment that we've been in. And also because of this idea that oil demand may peak and the new stuff's going to quickly take it over. I think we're putting to rest the idea that oil demand is going to be peaking anytime soon. And we can see as clear as daylight that the new stuff is going to be harder than what the bulls have said, harder than what politicians and activists have said. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's going to just take a longer period of time and cost more than people had previously expected. So at some point, and I don't know when, I'm still not predicting when, this steeping of the cost curve is going to come home to bite uh, in terms of higher oil prices. The other thing you hear about more recently is this idea that OPEC's got a lot of spare capacity. And I'm going to push back on that point as well. So this is Saudi Arabia specifically. And the blue line is their crude oil production. And I've drawn in what I would estimate to be their demonstrated capacity. So Saudi Arabia is the only country that for some reason is able to declare some higher capacity level that for whatever reason, they never have to prove to anybody. Now, I'm not saying they don't have it. I'm saying they've never actually shown it. And at some point in the last 20 years, when we've gone as high as $147, and we regularly had an environment of 100 and we've seen geopolitical disruptions and all sorts of things. You've seen Venezuela go away. We had sanctions on Iran that had hurt their production. Yet somehow, Saudi's production over 20 years, you might argue, has only gone up by 1 million barrels a day from about nine and a half. Uh, 20 years ago to about 10 and a half today. That is a remarkably anemic rate of growth. Shale used to grow by that much in a single year. We think this may be all they've grown over 20 years. And I think we have to be careful declaring that right now they have a lot of spare capacity cushion. Uh, One might've said in 08, 09 during the great financial crisis, they had a lot of spare capacity cushion. Of course, we were quickly back to hundred dollars. It's really about the ability of forward demand relative to forward supply to be met, either through non-OPEC or through OPEC. So the point here was, I don't think this spare capacity was that great in the context of what was then of sharp recovery in demand after the financial crisis and what was still struggling non-OPEC growth. Contrast that with 2016 to 2020. Here, Saudi looks like it's generally pretty close to their capacity levels, yet we know oil prices were very weak. Why is that? is because shale showed that it was willing to grow. I think perhaps not so profitably so, but it was it, it was willing to grow at a robust rate that matched demand. So we didn't need or didn't care. There was no sort of inherent call on Saudi in that environment. So I, I would simplify this, and I could probably do a whole video on just this these spare capacity points, is I don't think Saudi's spare capacity is very large based on what they've been able to demonstrate. If there is actually a larger disruption in the Middle East for any number of reasons, I don't think they're in a position to make it up. And that could be one of those catalysts to moving towards more of that super spike two type environment. You know, in the very short term, if you're trying to be a day trader, could Saudi raising or lowering production impact the price in the short term? Of course it can. But that's all you're talking about. You're talking about short term impacts. I would argue that there is not significant spare capacity in Saudi. uh, in the event uh, that you did have a more meaningful disruption from what is the the tragic and very unfortunate turmoil uh, in the Middle East. And we know that if you're, especially a Western oil company, you don't get to spend money. Politicians don't want it, activists don't want it, ESG people don't want it, and guess what? Traditional investors don't want it either. No one wants these companies spending money. And that's been fine. The returns were poor last decade. I'm a return on capital person. I get that discipline has been needed, But there is such a thing as the pendulum switching too far to the other extreme and in a world where new energies are going to be struggling, uh, where there's limited OPEC spare capacity, where there's unquestionably turmoil in Russia, Ukraine, and potentially now in a more meaningful way, the Middle East. And when we know the energy needs of the rest of the world are massive, even if there is economic uncertainty in a few important places today, we're going to need this spending to be higher at some point. Um, I I know my traditional investor friends hate when I make this point, hey, Arjun, stop giving them a break. I'm not saying companies should be undisciplined. I'm not saying that. Returns on capital are paramount. Uh, What I'm saying, though, is that I'm going to call this a trough level of CapEx, and that this is going to be insufficient ultimately to meet the energy needs of the world that is going to need traditional oil and gas for the foreseeable future. What we have not seen yet, and I think it's been consistent with our Supervol call, is Essentially, our Super Bowl is the volatility you see in the white line, which is spot oil, versus a more grounded back-end oil, which is five years forward, and that's the purple line. And I, I, you know, I, I apologize to anyone who's a technical analyst for my really lame uh, trend channel that I drew here, but I, I would just say on 60-month, five-year forward oil. Uh, it was around $50 a barrel for the second half of the last decade, and it's now kind of in the low 60s. So we've seen a little bit of an improvement, a little bit of a grind higher. Maybe that's inflation. Maybe that's some idea that shale's maturing. Maybe it's the recognition that demand is going to be better than people feared, especially after COVID. But but we've not seen the back end shoot up in a way that would say the super cycle is here. It'll be coincident. I'm not suggesting this can tell you what is going to happen. All I'm saying is that it is definitive that it's not happened yet. That's unquestionable. We are still definitively in a super vol environment. And what I'm asking is, when do we tip over? Is this Middle East going to be one of the things that tips us over to supercycle? And what we know from 20 years ago, it was back-end oil that drove that supercycle. I've shown this before, so I'll be very quick. These are cost curves from, let's see, January of 2004 to August of 2007. And while the front-end regularly flipped between contango inventories building or backwardation, inventories drawing, the real action, the real strength was at the back end as the market recognized there was kind of an insatiable demand growth from countries like China, China as they moved up the economic S-curve. And there was a real challenge to growing the supply both within OPEC and within non-OPEC. And we have a lot of those elements today with the exception of the China S-curve. We certainly have limited OPEC spare capacity. We have shale almost certainly maturing we have no one spending money, we've got a cost curve steepening. What we do lack today is confidence. I'm confident that oil demand will ultimately grow. But what I will acknowledge is that in the near term, there's uncertainty in these, in these key economic regions. And I, so I don't know whether geopolitical turmoil will be what flips us to this type of environment, or it's going to take the stability in the economic well-being of, again, China, Europe, and, and US, which, which is uncertain. I don't know. And so our, our, our final point here is, um, I think there'll be a time for those New energies names, the ones, about four graphs to grow, where the market caps were collapsing and the yields were going. Something will be interesting in that. Maybe it won't be those specific companies I've mentioned. Maybe it'll be a different group of companies, but we're going to need the new stuff. We're also going to need the old stuff. Uh, and it is underappreciated. It's underappreciated by everyone. We all take it for granted. And it's underappreciated by traditional investors, regular investors, forget about climate activists, regular investors. We have the sector at kind of a four and a half, just under 5% weighting. And we have profitability that I think is going to remain above a 15% return on capital by and large with a lot of volatility along the way for the sector going forward. And this gap is absolutely going to close. It's still on track to close. Via, I think the market cap rising as opposed to profitability collapsing, always possibly mean in the middle, but I will say that traditional energy remains very underappreciated. And I think we'll have to monitor the new energy space to see when the dust settles, what might be interesting at some point in the future. So I'd like to end this video on a personal note. and. Um, n- n- no one comes to super spike videos for my personal political opinions, whether they're on culture war issues or non oil and gas specific turmoil or challenges that are going on in the world. But, you know, we do have what now looks to be increasingly a second area of conflict in the world. And, and I've had the good fortune in my career to both serve on boards with some very senior uh, military personnel, but then also visit with folks in a variety of different means. And one of, The things that really has been fun is I've gotten the chance to participate in the PGA Reach program. It's an annual tournament held for veterans at Congressional Country Club in Washington D.C. And I had the great fortune to meet uh, a veteran, uh, Kevin Farrell's his name. He lives in Ohio. Uh, He is someone whose parents uh, served in the military. He has served in the military. His siblings have served in the military, and his children, uh, men and women have served in the military. I think their family started with the Korean War. It may date back before that. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq again, and as well as missions and service in between some of those major conflicts. Um, it, it, It has been such a blessing to get to know and to stay in touch with someone like Kevin, who actually asks almost nothing other than that I occasionally answer a full call just to, to say hello. Um, it's college football season. I'm now part of Veriton. I did not grow up a huge college football fan. Uh, I had an uncle who was um, a professor at Penn State, a physics professor. He's passed away. Uh, they were really our closest relatives at the time in this country. So we used to go out there once a year and I became an adopted Penn State fan. But you know, at Veriton, people are uh Sooners, Longhorns, Cowboys, Seminoles, Gators. Sorry, colleagues, I've forgotten one. Uh, but I was still a Penn State fan, I'm going to say. Big Ten, um, I'm excited to have USC and UCLA for a variety of reasons join the Big Ten in the years. But Kevin Farrell is an Ohio State Buckeye fan. And I'm just going to add them to the list of, I am going to make it a point to not dislike Ohio State and God forbid, actually root for them because I think it actually is something that uh, is important to Kevin. He's an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. If there's someone who deserves good things to happen to him, it would be uh, another Buckeyes championship uh, for him and his family. So uh, with that, thank you. We'll see you next week.